The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 443rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we have another one of our haunted cemeteries. This is number 23. Whoop, whoop. And along with that, we're also going to talk about that last ride that every one of us is more than likely going to take. You know, the one that takes you to your final resting place. (laughs) Everyone more than likely. Yeah, I'd I'd say that's a pretty good certain fact. (laughs) Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, James, Andrea, Kathleen, Carlos, Emily, Jenny with one N and an I, Joe, and Gary. Thank you for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Naughty. The resting place of Eliza Huger can be found in the churchyard of the Old Stone Church on Highway 76 in Clemson, South Carolina. There are legends connected to this very odd burial, which features a stone wall built all around the stone slab that marks her plot, the only burial with this feature. The first legend claims that she was a witch who was asked to leave the Old Stone Church, although her husband was allowed to stay. When she died, the church didn't want to bury her in the churchyard but they relented and buried her on the far side of the cemetery. They put up a wall around the grave to keep the witch inside. The wall crumbles on occasion, and people claim that Eliza cursed the church, and that's why the wall won't stand, and the church had to rebuild it every few years. Today, Rebar holds it up. Another legend claims that Eliza had been a lady of the evening, and her brother busted her with a client and shot and killed both of them. She was walled in to keep her loose morals away from the church. No one knows if either of these legends are true. But what is true is that the stone slab over the grave has multiple cracks on it, and it has had to be replaced multiple times because it continues to crack, either because of her spirit or because it's been hit by lightning many times. And that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. 
month of July on the 18th in 1914, labor activist Wobbly Joe Hill is convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Hill had immigrated to the U.S. from Sweden in 1879. He joined the International Workers of the World, IWW, in 1910. Members of this group were referred to as Wobblies, and they held the beliefs that the capitalist system must be rejected. They helped fight against mistreatment of workers in the mining, logging, and shipping industries. The ultimate goal, however, was to lead a workers' revolution. Hill had a talent for writing songs, and he was very witty, so he became the Wobblies' leading singer and songwriter. One of his songs introduced the notion of pie in the sky. The IWW felt that music would help move their cause further, and they published the Little Red Songbook. Joe Hill found himself gaining some fame, but it also put a target on his back. In 1914, grocery store owner and former policeman John G. Morrison and his son were shot and killed by two men during a robbery of their store. Hill was arrested for the crime, and even though the evidence against him was very thin, the jury convicted him, and he was sentenced to death. Apparently, Hill had shown up at a hospital the night of the murders with a gunshot wound. He explained that he'd been shot during a jealous altercation over a woman, but would offer no other details. Despite appeals and high-profile calls for leniency, he was executed by firing squad the following year. A biography written about him in 2011 details a letter that was found decades later that indicated the story Hill had told about how he was shot was true. Cemeteries are the final resting place for many people. However that final spot is decorated is a matter of money and preference. All burial plots are important whether that patch is adorned with a simple flat plaque or an audacious mausoleum. We've found that many of these cities of the dead are haunted. In this episode, we cover cemeteries located in Pennsylvania, Maine, Australia, Indiana, Tennessee, and Michigan. And then there's that little detail of how one arrives to that final resting place. A hearse usually gets the job done. Cheers to that final ride. This first cemetery that we're going to share is not actually haunted, but it's very unusual, and so I wanted to share it with everybody. And this was suggested by Beth Vanderyat, who sent me a message over on Instagram about this. This is called the Hooded Grave Cemetery. The rural cemetery movement began in the 1830s, and for America, many of these garden-like places became the first public parks, of course, because there were no such things really as parks once upon a time here. That is correct. So when they built these cemeteries and they were making them more like gardens, it was this big open area. So why wouldn't people want to use it like a park? These were wonderful spots for families to gather together, both the living and the dead. Cemeteries also bring together culture and history. Sometimes these elements are revealed in the symbols that adorn headstones, and other times it may be seen in the implements that accompany graves. Mount Zion Cemetery at 277 Longwoods Road in Catawissa, Pennsylvania is also known as the Hooded Grave Cemetery. The cemetery has that odd nickname due to a couple of these strange apparatuses found on graves there. The nickname references the hoods or cages found over a couple of the graves in this small cemetery. We've discussed mort safes on episodes before. 
These are those metal cages that are found over graves dating back to the 18th and 19th centuries that are believed to have been used to prevent grave robbing. These cages usually only rose about two feet above the ground. What makes the hoods or cages in the hooded cemetery unique is the fact that they rise over four feet high. They stretch the length of the plot and measure three feet wide. The hoods are found on two of the graves. One belongs to Aseneth Thomas, wife of John F. Thomas, who died on June 26, 1852, possibly from complications during childbirth. The other grave belongs to Sarah Ann Boone, wife of Ranslow Boone and sister to the aforementioned John Thomas. She died a few days before her sister-in-law, Aseneth, on June 18, 1852. An article in Medium by Annabelle Wagner claims that there had been a third cage in the cemetery until the 1930s, when it was removed because it was falling apart. It was believed to be over a grave of another woman, Sarah's cousin, Rebecca Clayton, who died in the same year. As to why these two cages are in the cemetery is anybody's guess, Kelly. Some people wondered if the affluent Thomas family was showing off their wealth. But why wouldn't all the family members have similar structures on their graves? Because many of them are buried here. Could these be bigger mort safes? There were no rules about what a mort safe looked like. That's possible. But this is a small graveyard, and it's not one near a city where dead bodies would be needed for dissecting at medical schools. So I don't really think they had to worry about grave robbing here. The cages are made from malleable wrought iron as well, so not real protective against saws or other tools. And the really odd thing is the fact that mort safes are not found in America. And these two are the only ones of their kind in the United States. I find that really unique because this is just some small little cemetery. Right. Wagner puts forward the idea that maybe there was a fear of vampirism. All three deaths in 1852 from an unknown cause lends credence to that theory. But maybe the most likely theory is to prevent people from standing on the grave and causing a grave to collapse as the ground here would have had that issue. I guess it's a really not hard soil there. And so maybe they did worry that people, if they came over and were paying their respects, that the grave would sink in. Yeah, that seems pretty feasible. Although, again, only two of them, and possibly there had been three of them in the cemetery, had them all in the same year. And the rest of the family members don't have them. So it's just... Did they decide, no, we don't want to make those anymore? I don't know. It's just strange. Maybe initially it was due to their status and they wanted to protect their loved ones as they were in the ground because they were concerned about it sinking in. And then maybe over time they had more experience that that wasn't necessarily going to be the case. So then they didn't invest in more of those. Yeah, possibly. It's also interesting. They're all women. Was there something about them all being women who died in the same year? Maybe they had some kind of a weird disease that we don't know about, and they wanted to make sure nobody ended up digging up the bodies. Let's move on to the Old York Cemetery in Maine. The Old York Cemetery is also known as Old Parish Cemetery. It's found in York Village, Maine, across the street from the First Parish Church. There are 11 noteworthy burials here that were recently showcased in 2020 by Boy Scout Tyson Matthews, who coordinated the research and installation of a large panel featuring the information. Good for him. I know. He did it as his Eagle Scout project, which I thought was very cool. There's a monument to the victims of York's Calamus Massacre of 1692. The oldest grave dates back to 1705 and belongs to an infant named Lucy, who died during childbirth. The most interesting grave here belongs to Mary Nassen, who died on August 18, 1774. Her image is carved on the crown of the gravestone. 
It's an odd image. For those of you who have seen Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film, Bram Stoker's Dracula, there's a scene of an aged Dracula, and he has these two buns on his head. That hairdo is how I would describe Mary's hair on her carving. On top of that, her eyes are bugged out, her lips are pouty, and she's wearing a loose robe. But that's not what makes this burial interesting. Legend claims that this is the grave of the York Witch. A stone slab sits atop the burial, and there's a claim that this was meant to keep the witch in her grave. She was said to be a white witch who helped neighbors with herbs and exorcised demons. Mary haunts the graveyard with people seeing her full-bodied apparition. She occasionally crosses the street and pushes children on the swings in the playground. Now on to Ballarat Old Cemetery. This was suggested by our listener Alex Riding. The Ballarat Old Cemetery is found in the Victoria, Australian city of Ballarat. This had been the land of the Wathawurrung Aboriginal people, who were displaced as our Native Americans were. This third largest city in Victoria had auspicious beginnings with discovery of gold here in 1851. This sparked the Victorian gold rush, and Ballarat became a boom town. In 1854, fights over gold licenses caused an armed uprising known as the Eureka Rebellion. Gold miners were becoming disgruntled with the colonial government and were demonstrating in increasingly violent ways. The Eureka flag was the Southern Cross flag, and 10,000 demonstrators swore their allegiance to this flag at Bakery Hill on November 29, 1854, under the leadership of Irishman Peter Lalore. The oath they took was, We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. This flag was flown over the Eureka Stockade, which the miners had built near the Eureka diggings, and remains a national symbol today. Government troops attacked the stockade on December 3, 1854, killing 22 miners, one of whom was a woman. Six soldiers were killed in the assault that lasted a mere 15 minutes. That was a quick one. Yeah, I'd say. The rebellion led to Australian democracy, and men were given the right to vote in 1857. And that's why the Eureka flag still is a symbol for them today, because it actually, in the end, led to them getting some rights and democracy going here. The city remained a boomtown well into the late 19th century. In 1854, the old cemetery was established with the first burial in May of 1856. The cemetery stretches over 17 acres with 35,000 interments. The grounds are beautiful with several garden areas, conifer gardens, highview gardens, sunset gardens, birdsong gardens, the terraces, and Tanika Lawn. There's a beautiful rotunda in the center of the cemetery, dating to 1893, that has been restored. A gatehouse was added in 1920 that has also been restored. There are burial areas for all different denominations of Christianity, Buddhists, Jews, and there's a nursery for babies and children's corner for kids up to the age of 12 years. A Tree of Memories is a memorial sculpted from bronze, featuring a tree with engraved leaves, featuring inscriptions for babies lost prior to reaching one year, and miscarriages, stillbirths, and neonatal deaths. A Pioneer's Block is dedicated to the earliest settlers to the area. A Eureka Monument was built for those who died during the Eureka Rebellion. Many of those who died were buried in a mass grave, but were disinterred later to the memorial which has a gray sandstone obelisk with a draped urn atop it, standing over the burial area. There's also a mass grave for over 10,000 gold miners. Many early burials were from dysentery that swept through the diggings. A little-known fact about Ballarat is that it became a mecca for spiritualism in the Victorian era. 
During the gold rush, there was this influx of spiritualists bringing their beliefs. But there were also Chinese immigrants coming who brought their beliefs and traditions around ghosts. So you've got all these different things kind of converging in this city together. Many of the residents thought that the hauntings happening in the town were due to the fact that the Chinese immigrants were unable to get proper burials. Thus, a special area at Ballarat Old Cemetery was set aside for them. Walter Craig was buried in the cemetery in 1870. He built the Royal Hotel in the 1850s. He owned a horse named Nimblefoot that was going to race in the 1870 Melbourne Cup. He told friends he dreamt that his horse, Nimblefoot, was going to win. There was something weird about the dream, though. The jockey riding his horse wore a black armband. Craig's horse did win the race, but everyone soon found out what the black armband had meant in the dream. The jockey wore it because Craig died shortly before the race. As an aside, Craig's spirit is said to haunt his hotel and is seen wearing Victorian clothing. Ghost stories are hard to come by, even though several ghost tour companies host tours through the cemetery. It's one of the things that drives me crazy, Kelly. I'm like, they start all of their ghost tours here at the cemetery. They tell stories about it. And you look online and you can't find a single one of them. Right. So I'm like, if they have so many stories to tell about the cemetery that they start off the ghost tours there, could you share some of them somewhere? No kidding. And are they actually the truth? Exactly. Because then I'm like, if there's not a lot of information out here, I've got to wonder about it. What I did find is that there are shadow figures seen at night in the cemetery as are floating orbs. And I think I found one story that said that Walter Craig also haunted the cemetery, but I think he probably is sticking around the Royal Hotel because if I had my choice, well, I don't know. I like cemeteries so much. I, I think I'd go between the two, but... <laughs> but I thought that was a really cool story about him. It's like he had a premonition. Yeah, definitely. Because his horse did win and the jockey was wearing a black armband. He just didn't realize that that black armband is because you're going to be dead before that race goes. Next, we have Springdale Cemetery in Indiana. Springdale Cemetery was founded in 1839 in Madison, Indiana. This is the oldest cemetery in the city and was established to take the place of the first old city cemetery that was built close to a creek and regularly flooded, raising the dead. With the risk of flooding on the mind of those who designed the cemetery, stone-lined drainage ditches were built along the cemetery. The design was heavily influenced by cemeteries in Europe. A Gothic Revival chapel with stained glass windows designed by architect Frederick Wallach was built in 1917. The first burial here was for 15-year-old Frances Fanny Sullivan, who died in October 1839. She belonged to the large Sullivan family. Her father, Judge Jeremiah Sullivan, sat on the Indiana Supreme Court. The Sullivan plot has both of Fanny's parents and eight of her siblings. The Sullivan home still stands as a museum and is said to be haunted. The old public ground section here is the final resting spot for many burials brought over from the 3rd Street Cemetery, which had been the original cemetery that flooded. That former cemetery is a park now that is haunted with stories of cold spots and floating orbs, probably because the bodies were moved. This also has led to hauntings of the Springdale Cemetery, because matching up of headstones with bodies wasn't complete, and some bodies were completely washed away in floods. Civil War veterans are buried here. One of them died during the Battle of Antietam, and another was also a veteran of the Mexican-American War. Hanging Rock Hill is near the back of the cemetery and is home to a large Italian marble sculpture created by George Gray Bernard for his family plot. He made it in 1922, and it features a woman raising her outstretched arms to the sky. 
there is ghostly activity associated with this statue. People have claimed to see tears of blood flowing from the woman's eyes. Legends that fuel dares for young people claim that if you trespass into the cemetery at night and kiss the feet of the statue, she will come to life and chase you from the cemetery. Doesn't like having her feet kissed, I guess. (laughs) Somebody with a foot fetish. (laughs) Something. Cold spots are felt throughout the cemetery and balls of light have been seen. And a strange spirit has been seen multiple times with only the torso and legs visible. The arms and head seem to be missing or just don't materialize. One of the causes for the hauntings could be a flood that hit the cemetery in 1978. As we said earlier, some coffins were washed away and finding their proper burial spot was impossible. So you've got a lot of bodies and headstones that don't match each other. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Next, we have the Shelby County Cemetery in Memphis. The Shelby County Cemetery is located at 8340 Ellis Road in Memphis, Tennessee. This started as a potter's field before the county acquired the property in 1891 and added more acreage, bringing it to 60 acres. The name of the cemetery officially became Shelby County Cemetery in 1934. The cemetery moved to a new spot in 1965, but many bodies weren't transferred before the Ed Rice Community Center and Fraser Park were built over it. Oops. Yeah, no Not kidding. Not a good idea. The new cemetery is said to be haunted because bodies weren't transferred. Memphis Paranormal Investigations have investigated here many times, and they've named one of the spirits they've interacted with the Cucumber Man. Because the scent of cucumbers accompanies his manifestations. He liked those little cucumber <laughs> sandwiches. Maybe he was an English guy. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. He seems to be quite fond of women and likes to touch them. Now on to Mouse Cemetery in Michigan. Mouse Cemetery is located in White River Township in Michigan, which is an area known for strange occurrences. White River Township is at the mouth of a river, so settlers nicknamed it Mouth, which is where the name of the cemetery comes from. I was like, oh, what a weird name for a cemetery. (laughs) And it literally does mean Mouth. Native Americans had lived here and were involved in a massacre between warring tribes in the 1600s. Early settlers founded the settlement as a lumber town, and the first burial in the cemetery took place in 1830. The first mark date on a headstone, though, is 1851, and this is for Christian Mark. Native Americans, shipwrecked sailors, Revolutionary War soldiers, children, and early settlers are all buried here. The cemetery is really overgrown and fallen into a bit of disrepair, and is thought to have 300 burials on three acres. Good grief, that's not very much space. No. The most famous burial belongs to a lighthouse keeper named Captain William Robinson, who was buried here in 1919. He was the first lightkeeper at the White River Light Station, which was built in 1875. He served here for 47 years and only stopped working there when he was forced to because of his age. He was in his 80s, Kelly. Wow. He still wanted to keep working. They were like, um, you know, it's time time to take it easy and just enjoy your life now. 
He oversaw the building and was there so long. It isn't surprising that he is said to haunt that lighthouse. And he also haunts his final resting place, which is near the lighthouse. A weird legend connected to the cemetery is about a chair that once sat at the cemetery. A young man sat in it, and people thought it cursed him because he died in a car accident exactly one year later. Now, who would have kept track of the exact date that this kid sat in a chair and then he died in a car accident? Exactly. It's the, the pinpointing of the date is almost too accurate to be believable. Right. People would dare each other to sit in the chair until it was removed. And I didn't see any description for what kind of a chair this is. Like here in Florida, we have some of those devil's chairs that are actual brick formations that right. are part of the plot. So I don't know if it was something like that. I don't know if it was a chair that somebody had dragged in there to sit near a plot. I'm, I'm not sure what it was. Disembodied footsteps are heard and strange mists are seen. Disembodied cries and screams are also heard, which might be connected to the massacre. The spirit of a young girl wearing a white period dress is also seen. A girl named Jennifer visited the cemetery, and she told Amber Rose Hammond, the author of Ghosts and Legends of Michigan's West Coast, that she was standing outside the cemetery and saw an orange-colored ball of light form in the trees. It hovered above the cemetery and then disappeared. Jennifer had called her friends over, and they said it was probably nothing. Then, at that moment, the light appeared again in the trees and hovered for a bit before vanishing. The light appeared a third time and disappeared. All the people in Jennifer's group witnessed the ball appearing at least once. Yeah, so I don't know what that was, but lots of witnesses to it. Kelly, when we come to the end of our lives, we are all pretty similar in that we want to go out in style, right? Absolutely. Does everybody want to go out in style? <laughs> Whether we choose a casket or to be cremated, the vehicle that gets us there should be special. One thing hearses have always done is drawn our attention to the procession. No one can watch a funeral procession drive by without contemplating the end of life. One day, we will all be there, taking that final ride to our final resting place. If you could choose anything to be your last ride, what would it be? Pink Cadillac, Alfa Romeo... I know, that's a bit cramped, but talk about going out in style. A stretch limo, perhaps? Strapped on a motorcycle. Kelly, I could see you laughing a little bit. It sounds a bit outlandish, but I know about a guy who was buried that way. Billy Stanley of Ohio was buried in 2014 on his beloved 1967 Electra Glide Harley-Davidson inside a plexiglass casket. A metal back brace and straps were used to ensure that his body stays on that motorcycle through all time. Well. Okay, until his bones fall apart. <laughs> Great. <laughs> his final ride was in a trailer in a procession to the cemetery with all of his biker buddies watching. I mean, that's pretty cool in my book. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I not? like it. So what would you want for your final, your final ride? Oh, gosh. I would say like a gothic or Victorian looking hearse pulled by horses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've I'm... seen enough of them posted in the crew and... <laughs> That just always makes my heart go pitter-patter. <laughs> exactly. We've had some of those really gothic Victorian-era ones posted in there. I think I even put one up on our Instagram a long time ago, and that's exactly what I want. Horse-drawn, or it could be driven, too, whichever one. I just want it to have that big, ornate, carved back end with all the glass around it so everybody can see my casket in there. 
I could be sitting up and waving. That's fine with me. <laughs> doing the doing the queen's wave. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody attached something to my hand so it just goes back and you know does a little queen's Hello, wave. Hello, peasants. <laughs> I'm on my way. I'll to see the you on the other side. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye. <laughs> or maybe we could go for like in the haunted mansion. Just have it cranked so that people could see my hands wrapped around the top of the coffin and I'm pushing up against it and then play a recording of me that I've made prior to my death saying, get me out of here. (laughs) Or that takes me on another tangent. How about a doom buggy? Oh. (laughs) While many of us refer to the vehicles used to transport coffins to their final destinations as hearses, the funeral industry refers to them as funeral coaches. The word hearse comes from the Middle English hearse, H-E-R-S-E. This hearse was a candelabra of sorts, usually placed on top of a coffin or in the back of a coffin. And a fun fact is that the reason funeral processions went slow was to prevent the candles from blowing out. Did you know that? I did not. I guess that's why they would just limp along. Makes sense, though. A candelabra that's upside down looks like the tool used to make harrows in the ground, and hearse was the term for harrow. Now, if you expect me to tell you how a candelabra term eventually became what people call the horse-drawn carriages that carried the casket to the graveyard during a funeral procession, I'm going to disappoint you, because I don't know. (laughs) But for some reason, this reference started in the 17th century. You're like, because I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, as Jared would say. I don't know. But you know, when we (laughs) research this stuff and we dig in, I'm always asking, why? Why, why, why? Why is it this? And I was like, how did that get to being that? Okay. So I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking, and if you weren't, we're going to tell you anyway, what was going on in the way of final rides before these first horse-drawn hearses? So this is the first thing that they were using other than, I assume, just actually carrying the body or dragging it to its final spot. (laughs) Lovely. Dragging it. (laughs) Come on, Marge. (laughs) 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 Gotta go with whatever you got. Push her into the hole. (laughs) (laughs) Roll her over. (laughs) Good grief. That's where roll her over and the clover came from. (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) I don't know that. I'm just making that up. Carts with a flat frame were used, and they were called beers. Many were as basic as a flat board on which a body would be placed, covered with a shroud, and dragged to the graveyard. See? They were dragging them. We eventually do still see beers today during funeral processions for important political figures like presidents. Beers are also used when caskets are placed lying in state. The modern funeral industry calls their beers church trucks, and they are usually made from aluminum and collapsible with wheels. These fairly boring and simple modes of body transportation gave way to much fancier ones with the introduction of carriages. Antique hearse carriages are gorgeous, and we love them. Some can be very elaborate with carved wood that features birds like doves, flowers, angels, and scroll work. There was a magazine for funeral directors called The Casket back in 1909. Great name. Yes, indeed. One of the hearses featured inside had large angels on either side of the display glass windows. And those windows were a traditional feature of the carriage hearses, along with draping. The glass came as either straight glass or cathedral glass in design. The cathedral glass is shaped like pointed church windows and can have elaborate designs as well. Another common feature were lamps on either side of the carriages, generally up front where a driver might be seated as he drives the horses. 
and that was something added to these carriages that beers usually did not have, horses. Horses were being used to pull the carriages, as now heavy caskets were being used for burial. No more dragging Margaret just on a slab of wood over, (laughs) I guess, wrapped in a burial shroud. We found this interesting article in the Morning Call back in 2001 that indicates that horse-drawn hearse carriages are still an option today. Kelly, we might be able to have that final ride. Joe Tetz owned the Tetz Coach and Hearse Company, and he discovered in 1996 that people were still interested in horse-led funeral processions. He drove a wagon for the 1996 reburial of three Revolutionary War soldiers, and people went crazy about it. So he thought it would be a good idea to gear his business towards that idea. In 1998, Tetz invited Robert B. Henselman, co-owner of Henselman Funeral Homes, to come see his funeral wagons, and Henselman was so impressed, he commissioned Tetz to build a horse-drawn hearse for one of their funeral homes. Henselman considers the wagon a treasured masterpiece, and the funeral home had hosted several horse-drawn hearse funerals for Henselman customers back at that time. Who knows how many it is today? So it seems that this kind of last ride could still be a viable option for some of you out there, or myself. Hearses remained horse-drawn until the first decade of the 20th century. As early as 1900, electric-powered hearses were used. Yep, you heard that right. Electric hearses were a thing in the early 1900s. The gas-powered hearses came along in 1909, and the first was designed by undertaker H.D. Ludlow. He commissioned the building of a vehicle made from the body of a horse-drawn hearse and the chassis of a bus. This was used at the funeral of Wilfred A. Pruin and became quite popular, at least with people other than funeral directors who found the vehicles to be too expensive. And for the time, they were running around $6,000 per hearse. By the 1920s, though, the gas-powered hearses were the norm, and directors found that the speed would increase the number of funerals they could host. And there was no danger of blowing out candles at this point, so why not? The Crane and Breed Company of Cincinnati, Ohio, became the first manufacturer of hearses. This company has a long history in the business of death. A claim to fame for them is that President Abraham Lincoln was interred in a crane patent metal coffin. Interesting. Yeah. The hearses they built could hit speeds of 30 miles per hour. These early hearses resembled the horse-drawn carriages with their box-like designs. Packard made a funeral bus in 1916 that was large enough to fit the casket, pallbearers, and 20 mourners. Take everybody there. Goodness, it's like a party bus. The 1919 Rio funeral coach resembles the horse-drawn carriages of old minus the horses. There are the lamps on the side and large interior draped windows on the side. Sayers and Scoville introduced the sleeker limousine style in the 1930s. Many of these had Landau style to them, meaning a simulated convertible. The Landaus were the parts of the hearse coaches that braced the folding leather tops of the horse-drawn carriages. Those simulated Landau joints are seen on the sides of modern-day hearses, so they are not just a random decoration. They have a historical reference. Kelly, Very cool. The other day I passed a caravan, and it had those Landaus on the side of it. And I was like, that has to be a hearse because it has those on the side of it. Exactly. I've actually seen minivan ones with that as well. Yeah, and I had no idea that that was in reference to the fact that a lot of the carriages had those little pop-top roof-type things, and that was the thing that held them up. And so now they just keep those on the vehicles. Some cities, like Chicago, had rail cars that were specifically used for transporting caskets. A special bureau operated these trolley cars three to four days a week on the L. Baltimore also had funeral trolleys for a time. 
remote cemeteries in Australia and London made use of funeral trains as well. Today, most hearses fall into two categories. The first has narrow pillars and large windows on the side through which the coffin can be seen. The other is the more commonly seen one with opaque rear panels and a small window in back so the coffin can barely be seen. These are the kind mentioned earlier with the mock Landau bars, and the roof tends to be vinyl. Most are manufactured by Cadillac, which started making hearses in 1916, or Lincoln. Fun fact, until the 1970s, hearses were also used as ambulances, since they had the bigger open rear bodies. The most popular Cadillac commercial chassis combo, ambulance-slash-hearse, would be the Ecto-1 from the Ghostbusters movie. That was a 1959 Miller Meteor model. Yeah, so it goes as both a hearse or an ambulance. I mean, I guess if they lose the patient on the way, you just bring them over to the funeral. (laughs) Save you some money, I guess. Sure. This is mostly the case for America. In Europe, cars built by Mercedes-Benz and Jaguar are modified by coach builders. And every time I see Jaguar, I always feel like I should say Jaguar. Commercial. Jaguar. And some Japanese hearses get elaborate enough that they build mini Buddhist temples on the back. These Japanese-style hearses vary based on the region where they are used. The Kananzawa style has a red body with gilded ornaments. Some are black, but red is more common. The Nagoya style is decorated on both the upper and lower halves of the car body. The Kansai style is modest and unpainted. Tokyo style features painted gilded ornaments on the upper half of the body. Chinese hearses in Hong Kong and Singapore are generally glorified vans. But when it comes right down to it, you probably could choose just about anything as your final ride. Wouldn't you agree, Kelly? Absolutely. So are these various cemeteries haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide. More great cemeteries to check out. And um, yeah, I think we've firmed up what our final ride should be. How about you guys? We'd love to hear from you. What would your final ride be in? You can send those to us at historyghostbump at gmail.com or comment in the crew or on Instagram, send us a direct message, any of those places you can get a hold of us. Also, please check out historyghostbump.com. If you are not subscribed to our YouTube channel, drop everything you're doing right now unless you're driving, head over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. We have lots of great videos up there, of course. All the podcasts are up there. I also am uploading the Phantasmal Crime podcast up over at YouTube as well. So it's all in that same feed together. And if you want to see our paranormal conversations where you get to actually see us talking to our guests, those are there as well. We'd love to have you subscribe to us over there. Go do it today. Wanted to share this from Janae. She said her uncle had passed away last week, so we are definitely sorry for her loss. He had lived a good long life. He made it to 81, so that's very cool. But she said, of course, you know, anytime somebody passes away, it still is a little bit shocking. You're not ready to have them go yet. When the undertakers were bringing the coffin to the church, they found the paschal candle, which is this ginormous ornamental candle that stands front and center by the altar. It had been knocked over. It's entirely possible that it wasn't seated in its holder well, but it just seems odd that it would fall when no one was around and be found when they delivered his body to the church. So I like to think it was my uncle making an entrance. Not that he would intentionally do any damage to the church he loved, but he kind of was a bull in a china shop in life at times, so it wouldn't surprise me if it was him. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And what was my comment? 
And of course, Kelly said, I'm so sorry to hear about your uncle's passing. I just told Diane she should watch for something similar when I go because bowl and china shop here for sure. <laughs> yes, indeed. If nothing else, somebody's going to trip while they're carrying your coffin <laughs> up the, up the main body way, I'm my sure. spirit while they're carrying me <laughs> off. <laughs> Instead of Kelly tripping, she's tripping the people carrying her coffin. Just wrap my whole coffin in bubble wrap. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Then we can drag it and ride it and do all kinds of stuff with it. Bounce it on down the road. <laughs> want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This, ep- this episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. in the churchyard of the uh, a biography written written it was a biography written about by a wascally wabbit (laughs) or maybe this was just a family who liked to dig up bodies and they had to prevent themselves from doing it i don't know (laughs) oh my goodness i could come up with any theory there are 11 noteworthy 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 there are 11 noteworthy (laughs) (laughs) our tongues are having some issues there are 11 noteworthy bear girls oh my god you can get through it kelly i know it see anyone can be a podcaster (laughs) mary haunts the graveyard with people seeing her full-bodied apparition she occasionally crosses the street what (laughs) she occasionally crosses the street and pushes children on the swings in the playground. I love how that made you go, what? No, stay away from the kids. Memphis paranormal investigations have investigated here many times. You laughing about that name? <laughs> yes. And they have named one of the spirits they have been... Inter- <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> okay, whew. <laughs> now I have the giggles. And a fun fact is that the reason funeral possession they're possessed. Hey, it's a funeral possession. Somebody get an exorcist out here. That carried the casket to the graveyard during a funeral procession. <laughs> that funeral procession is such a hard thing. The hearses they built could hit speeds of 30 miles per hour. Hours? 